0: This morning, we are uh, continuing, kind of actually ending, this is the final installment of our church membership Believe and Belong series, um, talking about what the local church is called to do, created to do, commissioned to do, um, not just the benefits we receive as being a part of the local church, but what we uh, our responsibilities that have been placed on us as the local church, our local body of believers. Last week, we talked about witnessing and kind of used uh, four points to create Uh, A sentence for the theme of last week and it was, we always stay ready to share the reason for our hope with anyone gently and respectfully. And so I talked about how we are always to be ready to share. Scripture says we should always be ready to give a defense for the the joy that we have, the hope that we have. Uh, Scripture says to be ready in season and out, meaning we don't get to pick. Uh, sometimes we can be uh, proactive and say I'm going to go and share at this time Uh, but if someone uh, comes across our path and we realize I should probably share the gospel with this person or minister to this person in some way uh, we don't really get the clock out right scripture says to always be ready to share uh, to be able to communicate to minister into the brokenness of someone else's life Um, and what do we share the second point was the reason for our hope and so there's the content of our message why do we have hope why do we have a different outlook? What, why is our life different than those who don't know God? We should be able to share the reason for our hope. Uh, with anyone was the next point, and so we don't get to pick the time, we don't get to pick the audience. Uh, we never know who God wants us to share with, and so we need to stay alert, sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading, and see who might be receptive, who might be uh, leaning in that we wouldn't expect um, to want to hear about the gospel or need to hear about Jesus. Uh, and then finally, uh, w- gently and respectfully. Uh, we don't witness to win arguments. We don't share about Jesus to be right and other people be wrong. Uh, we share Jesus so that others might trust in Jesus and become uh, new creations in him, just as we have become new creations in him. And so uh, gently and respectfully, we present the gospel. And it's the, that is the, uh, the foundation, the argument that we stand on, not, not our Um, not our pride, not our, um, you know, uh, our scoreboard, anything like that. And we are to share gently and respectfully. This morning is kind of an extension of last week. It's kind of a piggyback message to that. Uh, We're talking about multiplication and how we are called as churches and Christians uh, to multiply a few different things. So we'll look at some of those things this morning. Uh, For our look at multiplication, we'll be in the book of Acts. Acts details the works or... Acts of the Holy Spirit through the followers of Jesus, as the global church was starting to expand, right? The church, uh, Jesus has uh, commissioned his followers and ascended, uh, the Holy Spirit has come, and now the church is just like, all right, let's, let's do our thing. We're on mission until Jesus comes back. We have our marching orders, let's do it. Let's enjoy and extend the grace of God. They didn't say that, but uh, I think that's a way to sum it up. Let's do that. Um, and so that's what the book of Acts shows us, what the Holy Spirit's doing through the followers of Jesus. So this morning, we'll be in chapter 11, Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. And it says this. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also. And when he had found him, he brought him back to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So we first read about these uh, people who were scattered because of the persecution and scattered at good distances to different places. But the persecution didn't stop them from sharing Jesus with those around them. It's another great example of how persecution meant to stomp out Christianity only proved to extend it and spread it to places farther than it already was. starting in Jerusalem and spread out from there. Instead of killing it in Jerusalem, it stayed alive in Jerusalem and then was also sent to these other places and eventually the ends of the earth. This is exactly what Jesus predicted back in the beginning of Acts. Acts 1.8. He told his followers that they would be his witnesses In Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He kind of gives this, like, it's going to start here. It's going to expand from here and beyond to the ends of the earth. And he said, you will be my witnesses. And so what man intended for evil in persecuting the church, God intended for good. We see this throughout Scripture. And God uses the persecution, the spreading of these Christians, displacing of these Christians, to spread the gospel. These followers of Jesus are starting to multiply. And not just... In number, Let's look at four things we're to multiply as believers. The first one, we're to multiply believers. We're to multiply believers. As I mentioned a few moments ago, the disciples were sharing the good news with those who hadn't believed yet. This is God's plan for expanding the kingdom, building his family, growing his church, to multiply believers by sharing the good news of Jesus with those who are far from God. Notice it says of the first group, they were preaching to no one except the Jews. This isn't what God wants, is it? to only share with the Jews. Romans 1.16 tells us the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. But the passage in Acts didn't end with to no one except the Jews, right? They didn't leave us there. It says, but there were some of them who spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. Praise God for the some of them that shared the gospel with the Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jews. Right? That's, I think, everybody in here. So, where would we be? Where would the church be? Where would Gentiles be if it weren't for some of them, quote unquote? We don't even know these names of these people. It's incredible. These men were sharing the good news about Jesus with the Greeks that they might believe in him too. Now, let's look at the contextualization for a minute here. Let's consider how they put the gospel into context for the Greeks. Tony Merida points out in Love Your Church that they preached the Lord Jesus to the Greeks. This is significant because if they had gone preaching the Messiah to the Greeks, they would have had little concern for that because the Messiah was the promised one to the Jewish people, the promised king. And so to come and say the Messiah is Jesus and you need to turn your life over to him, surrender to him, this Jesus that lived and died and rose again, he was the Messiah, the Greeks wouldn't have little concern for that, maybe just Jewish folklore to them. But it says they preach not the Messiah, but the Lord Jesus. So they came preaching the Lord Jesus. The word Lord here is kurios. This is a Greek word, which means something that the Greeks would understand. Oh, you're not telling me about the Messiah, this promised Jewish king. You're talking to me about this one Lord that's above all all other lords. This authority that trumps every other authority that we could ever imagine, right? And so it's speaking to them in terms that they would understand, things that they could grasp onto. So they're going to pay attention to this. This is called contextualization, seeing where the brokenness is and speaking the same gospel truth, but in a way that makes sense to the audience. We see this in other places in Scripture, like Acts 17. Paul is in Athens, and they have these kind of monuments to all these different gods. And there's one that says to the unknown God. And Paul says, Let me tell you about the unknown God right? And he starts talking about the one true God, the God of Israel, but also the God of everyone, and says, the unknown God is this God that I I know, this God that changed my life, this God that can change your life too. And so coming at them in terms of, you know, don't come at us with this Messiah talk because we have no concern for this Messiah, that's for the Jewish people. But if you say there's an unknown God that we're worshiping, we're worshiping this God we don't have a name for, and you say, I know who the unknown God is, he's the one true God or I know who the kurios is, the Lord, the one Lord to rule over all, then they're going to pay attention. It's the same kind of contextualization we see with Jesus in John chapter 4, where he's talking to a Samaritan woman, and she mentions the Messiah, the promised one, this promised ruler, this promised king, the hope of Israel. And he says, I am that Messiah, right? So he's connecting dots to himself in a way that she understands. And Paul does the same thing, and we see the same thing here. In Acts 11, pointing dots all to the same Jesus, but in a way that people can relate to and understand in their context. We call this gospel fluency, and I mentioned this last week. We're to be gospel fluent in such a way that we can apply the gospel message to the specific brokenness of those who are far from God. I mentioned a friend who was, had a terrible relationship with his father, and so God, as heavenly father, was so meaningful and impactful to him, so he has a heart to minister to the fatherless. God is a father to the fatherless. And so there's a contextualization there where it's the same Jesus, the same God, the same grace, the same gospel, and yet, if we know the brokenness of our audience, we can sometimes speak to it more specifically. This, of course, begins with a heart for unbelievers. We have to desire that people come to know Jesus. We need to be grieved by the fact that they don't know Jesus, that they're far from God. And then we have to have ears to hear their story, right? Sometimes Um, and I can't speak for everyone, but I think there's been a lot of emphasis throughout church history in the last, I don't know, 50 years or so, to say you get your presentation down, here's your literature, you go, and here's your questions, and so just to kind of build up like I know what I'm gonna say, without taking the time to say, where are you coming from? What what have you been through? What are your hurts? Because I may not just need to go through step one, two, three, four, and then if you died today, where would you spend eternity? That's one approach but how much more relationship is there if I can say, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. I'm so sorry that that's part of your story. Can I tell you about a, a God who, who gives hope and life and meaning to that specific area of brokenness? We trust the results to God, and yet we share this message that he's called us to share because only the Holy Spirit can regenerate a person that's give new spiritual life. We can't do that. We're not called to save people. So when I say that we're to multiply believers, I'm not saying that we go and save people and make believers. We share the message. We sow the seed of the gospel, the message that Jesus has come to give new life, how people can have forgiveness and everlasting life in him. A side note here, multiplying believers means being on mission, and being on mission often involves going somewhere else. Just like we read in Acts 11, somewhere scattered to different lengths. In Romans, Paul asks, how can people believe if no one goes to share with them? We share across the street, we share around the world. Matthew 28 mentions all nations are peoples. So we need to listen to Jesus and be willing to go and share. If you're a believer, you have everything you need to multiply, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling and guiding you, you know who Christ is and how he offers forgiveness and abundant life, and you have your own unique story of how you came to trust in him for salvation. That's all you need to share Jesus with someone. Now once someone believes we are eternally sealed in the same Holy Spirit that gave us new life, but we're called to grow in Christ as believers. We're to follow him for the rest of our lives. This is called discipleship. Disciples are students or followers, right, who hear and obey a certain teacher. So disciples of Jesus are followers of Jesus whose lives are devoted to him. We've been commissioned by Jesus himself to make disciples. We're not only called to multiply believers, we're called to multiply disciples. The commissioning I just mentioned is known as the Great Commission. Jesus in Matthew 28 tells his followers to go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now let's look back at Acts 11. Verses 25 and 26, they say that Barnabas went and got Saul, brought him back to Antioch, and for a whole year, it says, they taught a great many people. Our mission is not simply to share the gospel for conversions, but to teach people how the gospel changes all of life, and how people can continue to walk by faith and trust in Jesus more and more, day after day, for the rest of their lives. And we see a pattern for discipleship in 2 Timothy 2.2. Paul tells Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's four generations of disciples in this one verse. Paul, Timothy, faithful men, others. It's a cycle that's supposed to go on and on and on and on. It's exponentially influential to continue to pass on the gospel, to teach others all that Jesus has commanded us. We wouldn't be here today if it weren't for this cycle of teaching others, who entrusted others, who taught others, right? The movement snowballs when we do that. If I disciple two people, and those two people disciple two people each, and so on, you can see how exponentially things go when you multiply that way. But why is it harder than it sounds? Well, discipling others is not simply information transfer. We're not simply playing telephone, right? Just like, here's the gospel, and just pass on this information, this head knowledge. We're to teach by informing, yes, but also modeling, encouraging, correcting, etc. Jesus didn't commission us to simply tell others all he commanded us, but to teach them to obey all he commanded. There's a parenting aspect to discipling. That's why it's so difficult, and why you may hear people refer to their father or mother in the faith. Paul refers to Timothy as his true son in the faith. Why does Scripture use this picture? Well, one, because it's selfless. There's an investment. There's a denying of self to teach someone else, to give of ourselves, to impart this wisdom, this teaching. Also, parents can't make their kids obey. They can only teach them what it means to obey, what it looks like to obey, and what the consequences of disobedience are. Of course, implied in this scenario is knowing what needs to be taught. Right? We cannot teach others to obey all Jesus commanded if we don't know what Jesus commanded. We cannot take someone farther than we've been ourselves. So if we intend to multiply disciples, we need to make sure that we are growing in knowledge and faith and obedience as well. We study. We sit under the teaching of others. We practice spiritual disciplines and pray. We live kingdom lives. We invest back into others. This is an overview of how we multiply disciples. It's a life on life, a giving of self. That's why it's not as easy as just pass this along, pass this along, pass this along. There's investment, there's selflessness, there's denial of self to invest in someone else. And if we're multiplying believers and multiplying disciples, then the next point should follow naturally, and it is we are to multiply ministry. We're to multiply ministry. Verse 29 tells us in Acts chapter 11 that uh, the disciples, having heard of a coming famine, determined to send relief to fellow believers back in Judea. Just like multiplying disciples is an exponential process, Ministry, or meeting the needs of others, can be an exponential endeavor, too. Again, Tony Merida refers to this as mercy ministry, or meeting needs through deeds. This is the same concept we've mentioned before from Acts 2, where Christians were pooling resources and sharing with anyone who had need so that no one lacked anything. When this approach is adopted and people are giving freely according to their abilities, it says, as we read here in Acts 11, the needs are getting met and the church is exhibiting the kind of care that stands out and showcases the kingdom of God according to their abilities. So again, there's this collective we are burdened to share and meet a need. And yet, we all have different abilities and resources and giftings. And so, yes, we're going to do this. We're going to address this need. But there's not, okay, we all have to give the same amount. We all have to do the same amount of work. No, we all have different resources and abilities and giftings. And so, we and the Lord determine how much we can give or what we can do or how we are going to minister. And yet, collectively, we have decided to minister, right? So it's, again, this beautiful picture of we're all in this together. We're all in the same direction, the same calling, the same effort. And yet, we all bring something different to the table. And God is just asking for obedience, right? He's not asking for the same amount from each of us. He's asking for obedience from each of us. So we determine that between ourselves and the Lord according to their abilities They gave and they met the needs that existed. Now, there's a peculiarity to the church's generosity, which emits this fragrance of Jesus to the world around us, right? We're blessed to be a blessing, and so our generosity should showcase our Jesus. It should stand out to the world who says, It doesn't make sense. Why would you uh, sacrifice that? Why would you be so generous? Why would you give that? Because we're trying to reflect the heart of God to those around us. We're blessed to be a blessing. Our church, Monsieur de Church, we, we look for ways to extend the grace of God to others by meeting needs when we can. We've collected toys and gifts and clothes for foster families. We've hosted events for our neighbors. We've provided treats for school teachers. We've fixed a few things here for our host church and worked to maintain or improve the facilities at different times. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, when we talked about care. The families in our church have cared for each other through illness or burden or need. This is something we are called to. And something Missy O'Day is committed to. We will be a church that looks to meet needs in our body, in our community, and around the world. When we have the means, we want to be like the Christians we just read about in the Bible who were taking care of their sister churches instead of competing with them. There's often an air of competition with churches that are in the same area, right? Kind of fighting for the same people or competing about what they have to offer and who's got this and who's got that. But the Bible doesn't show this. The Bible points us in another direction. It's a kingdom approach we see in Scripture, where we recognize we're all on the same team with other believers. We're not competing. Note verse 26. It says this in Antioch, this is where believers are first called Christians. And so these Christians with various backgrounds and differences and whatever, have come to Christ, and when they start to live as the church and live in this kingdom way, what do they look like? They look like Jesus. And so this term starts to be applied to them, Christians, little Christs, because they look like Jesus. So they're not competing with like, oh, well, this church is known for this, and this church is known for this, and this church is known for this, and so I can identify you by which church you go to. No, I identify you as a Christian because of your Christ-likeness. It doesn't matter which church you go to, we should all look like Jesus. The world recognized it and said, look at all these little Christs, right, right? Living like Jesus, giving like Jesus, serving like Jesus. We're here to help each other, cheer each other on, to push back darkness together with fellow churches, the global church that we've talked about in this series. This mindset, this kingdom collaboration, it's what helps us to pursue our final point today, which is we're to multiply churches. We're to multiply churches. In Acts 11, we see Paul and Barnabas being sent. In other passages, we read how they appointed elders in different cities after raising disciples. Paul went on missionary journeys to preach the gospel. He didn't just see people come to faith and then take off. He stayed. He discipled. He served. And he had those local groups of believers appoint overseers. Every time a group of believers would pop up and then he would move on, he would say, appoint elders over this group. That's a church, right? And he would plant all these churches So there's no verse that says, thou shalt plant churches, but just like we established with church membership, there's no verse that says, thou shalt join a church. It's not explicitly commanded in Bible, but it is heavily implied. I mean, we just see believers planting churches. Like other commands in Scripture, they're lived out in the context of church membership or identifying with the local body. We see the same thing with planting churches. This is a natural byproduct of engaging society with the gospel. Having people come to faith in Christ and then living out their faith with these Christian communities as believers start to group together, to live life together on mission, they become churches. They gathered, they prayed, they sang, they baptized, they took communion, they studied the word, they loved and cared for one another. They were becoming churches and then appointing overseers. This isn't a practice that was only good for the early church. This is still a calling on us to pursue, to start more churches. New churches are statistically more effective at reaching new neighborhoods and communities, young families, and unbelievers with no church home. Of those uh, demographics, new churches uh, are far and above more effective at reaching those groups. I mean, that's the reason that we are in Rose Hill, right, long time ago. Uh, God started to work in us to plant a church and we didn't know where and we we're just like oh, okay and so we started to talk to different people and there were some kind of locals out this way who said you know what there's a lot of growth headed towards Rose Hill and so that's kind of a, a church planning strategy is to say if there's gonna be a bunch of people there then we want to go there and be this gospel kind of lighthouse right to, to be salt and light to be able to minister to all these people that are coming and if you've noticed there's even more neighborhoods coming than we thought were coming when we came out here. Uh, Thousands of homes being built around us. And not that we're the only church out here, right? But we're in partnership with the other churches out here. And God willing, if if we're a church plant, a new church, we would be more effective at reaching those new communities, burdened by the lostness around us. And so that's one of the reasons we still plant churches. I remember early on, uh, Danielle was like, why do we need new churches? There's churches everywhere. Um, sorry to use that example without asking your permission, but uh, she's come around. Um, but, that's, but that's why, right? Because um, you could say, man, there's tons of churches out here We've got plenty of room for all these people, um, which is not the case, right? We assume that because not everybody goes to church. So yeah, there's enough room for the people who go to church, but think of all the people who aren't in church that need to be churched, right? We don't want to be behind the curve. We want to say, man, we've got enough churches for everybody. We want to church this region, right? We want a gospel infestation, as the Houston Church Planning Network says. A gospel infestation in our area. Because there are way more people than there are churches right now, and room in the churches. Plenty of people to go around. Again, we're not competing. We're sharing the ministry with others. And so we start new churches so that more people will worship our great God. We invest in church planting because we operate with a kingdom mindset. We want other churches to succeed, right, in the same mission that we're on. God is calling and using people all over the world, and we can be a part of that. So we want to support that, our brothers and sisters, in various ways. And we recognize that starting new churches means existing churches have to send people out. Our sending church sent us out. Churches have to be willing to share and trust that God will bring someone to fill the void left behind. This creates what Merida and others have referred to as gospel goodbyes. Christians and established churches need to be okay with gospel goodbyes uh, when we have to let a beloved family go in order to pursue ministry somewhere else. This should be a beautiful thing for churches to celebrate, that they got to front row view of raising up and sending someone out, preparing someone as God called them to another work. And as much as I don't want anyone to leave our church, I want someday to be able to send people off in a celebratory way because God has called them to a new work. It should be an honor for us, right, to help multiply churches and be a part of this biblical pattern, which showcases God's plan for kingdom advancement. So as followers of Jesus, we're called to multiply believers, disciples, ministry, and churches. If you're like me, it can seem or sound overwhelming to try and grasp the magnitude of this calling and anticipate what that might mean for us. Man, that's a lot. You just laid out these crazy amount of things that we're called to do and multiply. Maybe you think your contribution is too small to make an impact, but this is the beauty of multiplication. If everyone does their part, even small contributions flow into the major outcomes. Consider this recent stat that I heard as Major League Baseball uh, star, Albert Pujols, just hit his seventh, 700th career home run. He's an elite company here, 700 career home runs. And I read that his average home run trot is 26 seconds long. Now, 26 seconds, is it's ha- not even half a minute, right? That's nothing, 26 seconds out of your day. That's minuscule. But if you multiply that out times 700 home runs, Albert Pujols has spent five hours running the bases. Just in the home runs he's hit. So you think about it this way. My little obedience, my little faith, over time, consistently, right? My faithfulness, uh, as Eugene Peterson says, a long obedience in the same direction. God uses that and multiplies that in ways that we don't even know. Ways we can't even imagine. Just like we read in our call to worship. Our God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Not our power, the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us to do abundantly more than we ask. So it's like, oh, I could think of it, but I'm a little afraid to ask or can think of. God can do more than we can even imagine to think of. And so don't think that your contribution is too small and has no impact, and has no significance in the kingdom, because God will multiply that for his purposes, for his glory. He can do more than we can think or imagine. God is working within us to accomplish far more abundantly than anything we could ask or even think of. This is the fruit of gospel multiplication. This is our prayer for Messia Day Church. Let's pray. God, we thank you for What we read in scripture is is your followers were just obedient and faithful. For people like Paul and Barnabas to have this vision to know that you are are creating world-changing movements through the the daily faithful obedience of your followers. That our our efforts, our ministry, uh, our giving, our sacrifice while we may seem small and we may think it's insignificant, God, you, you multiply that across our community, across our state, across our nation, around the world. And throughout history, you have done this, and that's why Christianity is still around. That's why people are still trusting in you. That's why you're still transforming lives because of simple, daily, faithful obedience that you then multiply. God, give us a heart and a vision for multiplication. May we be encouraged by what you're doing in us and around us for your church, for your glory. Show us what part we're to play and find us faithful. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.